Welcome to The Stone Wolves, a Galactic Football League novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Hello, junkies! I've got some big news for you. I have finished GFL Book 7 Second Draft. It's finally done. It is off to Big John Viscara, the Siglerverse continuity czar. And let me tell you, he's got his work cut out for him. 171,000 words that he's going to go through, find stuff we can cut, find stuff I missed, find connections that need to be made, all that good stuff. And that, that's right, it's done. And that means that finally... Finally, finally, the SIG has come back to the crypt. I have now started work on the long-awaited military sci-fi horror series. My deadline for the first draft of book one is June 1st. Will I meet that? It remains to be seen. But let's get back to the Stone Wolves. I'm going to get you caught up on the story, and then we're all going to go G17 makes bingo. Previously on The Stone Wolves, Druge Thorne knows that the killer is coming. Coming for him. Thorne's trap is ready. When it springs, when the killer dies, nothing can stop Thorne from finishing the cruncher. Chapter 20 Tourist Trap Druge Thorne was not a superstitious man, but he believed in one inexplicable thing, one bit of woo-woo that could not be proven, could not be tested. He believed in his intuition, intuition that had led him to make key decisions that cheated death, that eventually led him here, led him to MT-734, where he was about to change history to help, in his own small way, ushering in a new reality that would, finally, break the savage iron grip of the Kratorakian Empire. And that same intuition screamed one truth that he could not possibly know for sure. That truth? The killer was coming. Maybe his intuition was wrong. Maybe the Ponskis had finished off the old psychopath along with Goldman. Maybe the Stone Wolves were truly and finally gone. There was no way to know at this point. The Ponskis had sent word that they'd reached Rurgirk and were going in. If they'd succeeded, Druge would hear about it in a few hours, after either their punch beacon or one of their ships reached MT-734. That was the real problem with FTL travel. Data, including communications, had to move on ships or beacons traveling from Gravity Well A to Gravity Well B then be transferred to another ship or beacon that would punch to Gravity Well C, and so on. If the distance to be covered was three or four punches, the message would arrive faster than sentience could because messages could be beamed to the next vehicle at almost the speed of light before that vehicle punched out, whereas sentience had to transfer from ship to ship, a process that just plain took longer. But if it was just one punch... Then which got there first, sentience or data, 
depended on which punched out first. It was that simple. Rurgurk was only one punch away. Which meant, if the killer and the traveler had deciphered the code the traveler carried, and if they found out about the cruncher base, then they might very well arrive before any warning sent by the Ponsky sisters could. The Ponsky sisters had been given the chance to take out the killer and Redwire. Had the sisters failed? Possibly. But if they did, Druge Thorne would not. Did his intuition tell him that? No, his planning did. A real leader preps for contingencies. Yes, the killer might be coming two stone wolves in his wake. If he did, Druge was ready. And if the stone wolves didn't come, if they sent out a signal for help, then it was already too late. A few more hours, and the final assembly would be completed. The emissary was close by, waiting to take delivery. Druge would leave, then destroy this facility, killing every sentient in it. Maybe the killer wouldn't come at all, and Druge would be successful. Or maybe that bastard Killian Carbonara would come, and Druge could avenge the death of his family as well. In business, sentients called that a win-win proposition. No matter what the killer did, he couldn't reach this place. Druge had four hurrah fighter craft, piloted by well-paid hurrah who were promised a huge bonus if they took out any threat, stationed near the punch-out spot. The punch-out area was huge, of course, a big chunk of space, but in the scope of the universe, it was barely a thumbnail-sized area. The fighters were well between that area and MT-734. Only one way in, and Druge had it covered. The killer ship was fast. It wasn't as fast as hurrah fighters. The killer ship was maneuverable. Nothing was as maneuverable as hurrah fighters. And, on top of that, Druge's contact would give him an almost instantaneous warning the moment the Olren came out of punch space. He could signal his hurrah fighters, and they would be all over the killer like stink on a sweaty sock. One way or another, this was almost over. The Stone Wolves. The hated Krizatu that Druge had fought so many times so long ago. If he was the one to finish them off, the broker would reward him on top of the huge reward he'd get for completing the Cruncher project. A soft alarm ping rang in his office, and his pulse took off like a shot. The increased heart rate initiated a corresponding burst of pain up Druge's back, but for once, that was easy to ignore. The signal had been received. It was happening. It was really happening. Operations, he said. The voice of the sentient manning his op center came back instantly. Yes, Lord Thorne? Lord Thorne. A few days earlier, Druge had instructed his staff to address him as such. Much better than Director Thorne. If Druge wasn't going to get respect from the emissary, he'd damn well get it from everybody else. We have visitors, Druge said. Tell the emissary to send the welcome committee immediately. Yes, Lord Thorne, but I'm detecting seven ships in range. Which should they welcome? The one that just came out of punch space? Drew shook his head at the man's idiocy, but stopped when doing so sent a twinge of pain up his neck. 
Yes, the one that just punched out, Drew said. I'm transmitting a beacon signature. Send that to the emissary. Get me telemetry. And get me that incoming ship's ID. The ship is coming in fast, Lord Thorne. It's accelerating rapidly. Welcome wing is spreading out. ETA to maximum firing range is 20 seconds. We have ID... Uh, no, uh, sorry, Lord Thorne. The ship's ID is scrambled. You apparently have about 17 seconds to unscramble it, Drew said. Or you will be taking a nice afternoon walk. Drew's heard the ops controller screaming at his team. The preparations were perfect. As a precaution, Druge had told the emissary to move his ship into the punch-out window from Murgurk. There was no way the Oleran, if that's what it was, could get away. Could some tourist ship see what was about to happen? Perhaps. The welcome committee would take them out as well. And if someone saw and got away, it didn't matter. In a few hours, the emissary would take possession of the delivery. Druge would be gone from this worthless planet long before any message could arrive anywhere. We have it, the ops controller said. Ship ID confirmed. Oleron, reg number G-1948-Q. They hit it, but our team found- Put it on my screen. Now. The crystal window flashed with light. The factory floor below vanished, replaced with a star-spotted field of pure black. Icons flared to life, four red and one in the center, blue. The blue icon tried to slow, to curve, to angle away from the incoming red marks, but it was already too late. The blue icon flashed, indicating it was firing unknown weaponry. Two of the red icons flashed as well. The blue icon blinked white, indicating the hurrah fighters' targeting computers were reporting probable hits. The red icons flashed again. The blue icon blinked out. Lord Thorne, the welcome wagon is reporting a detonation and subsequent breakup of the incoming vessel. It is destroyed. Was it? Maybe. Twice before, Druge had assumed he'd killed the stone wolves, and both times he'd been wrong. Now, though, there was no way out. Yet it never hurt to be sure. The emissary is having half the welcome wagon search the area for other, um, other tourists, the controller said. He's bringing the other half back, says he doesn't want to risk being too visible to casual traffic. Casual traffic. It never ceased to amaze Druge that sentience came to MT-734. It was a dead rock. And yet, like every other punch-supporting mass out there, people came to see it. Curiosity seekers. Joy riders. Rich bastards who had nothing else to do with their money other than brag to their friends that they had seen every planet out there. It made Druge bristle that the emissary was still calling the shots when it came to the pocket carrier. The vile leaky was on it, of course, which made it impossible for Druge to override the emissary's commands. Soon, though, Druge would join the emissary on that ship. Then, as the newly minted hero of the Vermada, Druge would see about who was actually in command. Ask the emissary to have the welcome wagon find pieces of wreckage and bring them back for analysis, Drew said. Tell him it is very important we confirm that the destroyed ship was the Oleron and not something else. Yes, Lord Thorne. Lord. Such a nice ring to it. 
Would there be lordships in the post-Kretorakian structure? He hoped so. Was it over? Was the killer really gone? Barring some kind of escape pod miracle, everyone on the Oleran was gone. Killian Carbonaro was dead. Druge had taken out the bad guy. He'd avenged his family. He'd made things right. He nodded to himself. Death from a distance. It was the way he'd always done things, because it was the smart way to operate. And yet this time, it all felt so very anticlimactic. It felt hollow. Screen off, he said. The star-spotted blackness vanished. Once again, he was looking down on his factory floor. So close. So damn close. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Are you thinking about getting into Dungeons & Dragons? Maybe you're looking to expand your horizons as a DM or a player. If that's the case, then it's time for you to check out The Dungeon Cast, the best D&D podcast out there that helps you passively learn all about the game just by listening. Find The Dungeon Cast anywhere you get podcasts or on YouTube. Chapter 21. The Old Ones. The Void Cloak had many abilities. It could camouflage its wearer protect its wearer against bullets, lasers, and several other means of putting holes in human beings. Its thick folds held hours of stored air, keeping its wearer alive in poisonous atmospheres, even in no atmosphere, at least for a little while. The thing it did now, though, was something that garments of this shape had been made to do long before energy-diffusing fabric and light-bending technology came to be. It kept the wearer warm. It's freezing in here, Aya said. Killian wasn't sure if her stutter was from the cold or an affectation in support or mockery of Beans. I'll make you a schmeck suit, Beans said, from inside his huge schmeck. Next time, your own body heat will keep you warm. Even though he was shouting, it was hard to hear him as he'd shut down power to his big, heavily armed Ursa Major mech. He sounded like a talking sardine screaming from inside an overpacked can. Everything had been shut down. Any energy fluctuation, from a schmeck, an ecosuit, from speaker film, etc., had a small chance of emitting a signal that might escape the ship and be detected by the pocket carrier's nearby fighters. In space, nearby was a relative term, of course. The fighters were thousands of kilometers away. Out of visual sight, but electronic emissions, even a minuscule bump in the temperature of the Oleran's hull for that matter, 
could alert them and bring them in. If that happened, Killian knew he and his crew, Viden and Redwire along with them, were dead. Killian's fat-bottomed girl could duke it out with many ships, but for Isaacs, the Oleran didn't stand a chance. It's below freezing in here, Aya said, her teeth chattering. How much longer? Zan's spider schmeck twitched. Honestly, Aya, you disappoint me, the Exo said. You need to develop more tolerance for such things. It is much colder than this in my hold, and you do not hear me complaining. The spider schmeck had proven ironic in the quest to find Fanaka's bot. Or was that destiny instead of irony? Killing was never quite sure what irony even was. After all these years, one would think he'd know. Or maybe he had known, and he'd blocked it out. While Beans had focused on emergency repairs to both ships, Zan, Killian, Aya, and Redwire had gone hunting. In any other situation, it would have been a ton of fun. Zan driving Peaches through Beans' tunnels, clearing them out one by one as Killian and Redwire sealed them up behind her. Aya had gone to town, scanning every signal she could think of to try to root out the mystery guest or at least activate it. Maybe trigger a programmed urge to move somewhere, hide somewhere. Zan still had dust bunnies clinging to her severed squirrel head and dozens of bright, fresh scratches on the round shell. She'd crawled through tunnels that not even beans had visited in years. Zan, using Peaches' incredibly advanced optics, had spotted a tiny trail in the dust, dirt, and detritus that had accumulated in the passages. She had followed that trail throughout the ship, the little amoebot had crawled to tunnel exits around the ship. At the rumpus room, the mess, Aya's quarters, rudely listening in on the crew's conversations. Zan had finally spotted the little amorphous robot a few meters back from the tunnel that opened up to the bridge. The thing had sent Zan and tried to flee, but Peaches was bigger and faster, and the machine's optics were state-of-the-art. After Peaches saw the amoebot, it was all over but the crying. Once captured, Beans and Aya had gone to work on it. Well, we haven't been blown up yet, Killian said. So maybe our decoy worked. Sound of a pen scratching furiously on paper. Viden writing on a pad. Her translation box had been turned off, just like most electronic equipment. The chances of a device like that being detected were infinitesimally low, but even that risk wasn't worth it when there were low-tech options at hand. The hurrah held up the pad, showing what she'd written in English. By the stars of my father, my ship wasn't a decoy. You will repay me with a new ship. Two exclamation points. Killian grunted, neither in agreement nor denial. Using Diana's arrow had been Viden's idea, after all. Viden had no blankets, no cold-weather gear. She didn't need it. Hurrah were the most physically delicate of the major races, but when it came to their ability to tolerate extreme environments, there was no equal. Hurrah had evolved on the gas giant Shora. The species flourished in air pressures both high and low, in heat and in cold, and everything in between. For fun, adolescents of the species liked to see if they could float above stratospheres and stay there unprotected, in the void, for as long as they could before coming back down. 
Killian could no longer control his body's reaction to the cold. He shivered, pulling the void cloak tighter around him. He thought of Fanaka, his former comrade, his former lover, his former friend. She had pulled off a trick so simple, so basic, that Killian was embarrassed he'd fallen for it. Nothing more than old-school misdirection. Watch my right hand waving the magic wand while my left hand does the real work. Her right hand was Peach's. Her left hand was the amoebot that had hidden inside Peach's corroded data slot until the time had come where it could slither out, unseen, and move around the ship. Before she'd come aboard, Fanaka hadn't known about Beans' hidey-hole tunnels, but once she saw them, she'd undoubtedly been delighted. The little amoebot had oozed through the very passages Killing had forbade Peaches from exploring. The thing had silently moved around the Oleran, listening, gathering data. When the Oleran punched out anywhere that had normal communications networks, the amoebot transmitted what it had learned in a dash of coded data. That dash was picked up by whatever local communications web was around, then routed through the Galaxy Relay Network like any other signal. That was how Thorne had known about Rurgirk. That was how he'd known to send the Ponskis there. While still in punch space, Beans and Aya had modified the Amoebot's memory to omit everything the Oleran crew had done from the seconds prior to them realizing they had an unwanted visitor. The things the machine had recorded before that, though, was good content, which hopefully gave Thorne reason to believe that nothing had changed, that his Amoebot was still on the Oleran. As soon as the conjoined ships had come out of punch space, they had decoupled. Diana's arrow, with its false ship ID and the transmitting Amoebot aboard, had hurtled at full acceleration toward the Vermada facility. If all had gone well, Thorne thought the Oleran had been destroyed. The ruse wouldn't last long. It didn't have to. Just long enough for Killian and the others to reach the research facility. I'm cold, Aya said. Shut up, Killian said. Redwire, who was shaking so hard Killian heard his teeth clattering, unfurled his blanket and wrapped it around him and Aya both. It was a very parental gesture, the same kind of thing the man would have done for one of his own children. Seriously, though, Aya said, how much longer? That was a good question, one upon which rested the lives of six sentients and possibly billions more. Beans, explain, Killian said. He was so cold, he wasn't sure he could manage more than those three syllables. It's a numbers game, said Beans, from within his hulking war machine schmeck. If the Isaacs commit to an exponential search grid, they have a good chance at spotting us visually, and then we're skewed. Screwed, Aya said. Screwed, Bean said. If we move before they give up the search, then it's assumed we will g- 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 get rusted. Dusted, Aya said. We will get dusted, Beans. Aya Papaya, are you mocking me? No, Aya said. I'm freezing. Dusted, Bean said. If the fighters return to their pocket carrier, our stealth capability and signal masking should let us touch down on the planet. The longer we are alive, the more likely it is we will stay so. Until we attack the facility, of course. 
Killian realized Beans was doing a kind thing, talking more than he had to, trying to keep Aya engaged. Wait and talk. What else was there to do? Longer they waited, the better chance they had. But at the same time, the longer they waited, the more likely it was that Vermada reinforcements would arrive, or that a ship would take the Cruncher off-planet, or that the Ponsky sisters would show up if Thorne had trusted them enough to tell them about the facility. It was a balancing act, really. If Killian moved too soon, he and his crew were dead. If they waited too long, he and his crew were dead. To make matters worse, they had no way of knowing if the Isaacs were coming in for the kill or returning to their carrier. The Oleron sensors, like everything else on the ship, were completely shut down. He and his crew would freeze to death before they ran out of air, but that was only if the Ponskys didn't arrive first. It was one thing to use the bait-and-switch dead ship trick on someone like Thorn, quite another to try it on hardcore smugglers who had probably used the same trick a dozen times themselves. If the Ponskys came, they knew what to look for. Perhaps Thorn did not know what to look for, but if that was the case, he would figure it out soon enough. Everyone listen carefully, Killian said, fighting against his chattering teeth. I'm going over the plan one last time. Red, you pilot. I'm counting on you to get us to the surface as fast and quiet as possible. We will use the Oleron stealth capability to get as close as we can to the facility. Redwire nodded, his face grim and determined. Killian would have rather done the piloting, but he wasn't going to let his pride get in the way. Red was better. It was that simple. Zan, Killian said, tell me our false idea again. When we activate ship systems, we will present as Miss B. Haven, a freighter converted into a family touring vessel, the squirrel-headed spider said. Home port is on Thomas Three. Ship ID is KR-JB221-9C. Miss B. Haven was one of Zan's favorite fake IDs, on account of the fact that there were upward of 20,000 vessels registered with that name in the galaxy and every single oblivious owner probably thought they were the only one clever enough to come up with it. MT-734 was isolated, yes, but it still had ship traffic. At any given time, there were anywhere from 10 to 30 ships visiting MT-734. If the Oleron could get away from the punch-out area without drawing the attention of the fighters or some other Vermada craft, Miss B. Haven would be just one of several pleasure craft in the area. Once near the planet, the Oleron would go into stealth mode. The facility did not have the sensor gear to detect it. If that was, Redwire's hard-earned intel was correct. Aya, Killian said. When will you know what you can do with facility systems? The poor girl was shaking, shaking hard. She had to focus to speak. Already told you, Skipper. I won't know until we get closer. You better stop making f f fun of me, said Beans from inside his hulking suit. I mean it. Beans, can it, Killian said. Are you ready for your role? If the Ursa Major suit had been activated, Beans would have probably saluted or done some other bit of pseudo-human nonsense. I'm ready, Beans said. 
Operation Beans is Very Offensive is about to commence. This time, Killian did laugh, if only a little. He briefly thought of correcting the Sklorno to Beans is on the offensive, but it made no difference at this point. Don't forget your secondary objective, Beans, Redwire said. I need you to get every bit of data you can. Observe whatever you need to observe. If this isn't the only place they're building one of these weapons, or if they already built it and shipped it off, discovering some kind of cruncher detector could save billions of lives. Billions of lives. Redwire loved that phrase. Killian was sick of it. He didn't care about billions. He cared about the sentience in this icy hold and, more than anything else, a star football player for the Ionath Krakens. Killian and the others waited while Viden wrote a new message. She finished, then held up the pad. It read, I will assist the male Sklerno in his secondary objective. For if the transitory nature of existence is to remain fixed on this fluctuating point of time-space, we need the help of the ancients and all others who are willing to rise against this unfathomable evil, an evil not even the old ones could ponder. Redwire smiled at the hurrah, shook his head. I hope we all live, he said, because, lulz, if we do, I have to introduce you to a teammate of mine by the name of George Starcher. I think you guys would get along famously. It was a good plan. Again, if the intel was accurate. If not, Killian, Red, and Viden knew how to improvise. Zan would stay with the Oleron, waiting to evac the team, ready to bring the Oleron into play if there was no other choice. As for Killian's role, he would lead the team in. And more. It was foolish to delude himself into thinking this could be done without inflicting casualties. Most likely, heavy casualties. Would Thorn be included in the body count? Killian had murdered the man's husband and child in cold blood. A war crime. The blood of Thorn's family was on Killian's hands. The blood of Killian's family was on Thorn's hands. Thorn had once tortured Fanaka. She'd recovered. Then he'd done far, far worse. He'd corrupted her. Recoil, dead because of Thorn. Hopscotch, dead because of Thorn. Maybe Killian would soon be dead, but he knew one thing for certain. Druge Thorn would die first. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella, written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins, performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram, where he is at Scott Sigler, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2021, Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song Battle Cry by the band Super Weapon.
Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.